Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and we have a very special guest with us today, John Reinhardt. John is the author of Gospel Patrons, a book detailing the integral role business leaders have always played in God's kingdom. His books and speaking have inspired tens of thousands of leaders and hundreds of ministries and organizations. He and his wife, Renee, have a son and a daughter from Ethiopia, and they love traveling the world. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, you're welcome. This is so fun. I can't wait. Now, listen, I was telling you before we started recording that there's only a few books uh, that I keep in my office, uh, that we keep in our offices around the country at Arcos uh, to give away uh, to clients and prospective clients. And uh, yours is one of them. And uh, the reason is that I think we speak to kind of the same customer, if you will, uh, which are uh, sort of blessed financially people around the country. All kinds of different zeros are involved in that. But if you live in America, gosh, you're one of the richest people on the planet. And so uh, your book really tells all of these stories about how people, business people, have supported gospel movements for generations. And we're going to get into the, some of those stories. But, you know, people, you got to hang around to hear the backstory first. So let's, let's, we always start out by just asking our guests, uh, kind of where they grew up to set the context, that kind of thing. What was your family like? Where were you in the country? That sort of thing. Yeah. I, I was born in Minnesota to a couple of parents who lived in a very small town and had moved to the big city because my mom got a corporate job when she was in her 20s and became kind of was a budding business star. And she didn't, know it at the time, but that kind of left the small town, left the farm, left all that behind and went to the big city of Minneapolis. And that's where I was born. I have an identical twin brother named Jim and he lives in San Diego, California, is a a whiz at commercial real estate down there and uh, is a budding gospel patron himself. And so, yeah, I've got one brother, two parents. My parents have been married almost 50 years. So really encouraged by that. And that set the context for my growing up years is having you know, parents that worked in business, they loved the Lord and led me to the Lord when I was seven through a Christian camp that I got to go to. And Jesus was real for me at a young age. And, and I wanted to pursue whatever he had for my life. Just wasn't sure how that plan would unfold. And so what it was, was your mom really the business person? What was your father? Well, she was. Yeah. My mom, my father worked in healthcare in a variety of capacities. And initially it was more on the counseling side and then transitioned to more of the management side. My mom's career outpaced him financially. And that sort of drove some of the opportunities for my family to move around, but uh, they both did well in their careers. And I grew up in sort of a middle-class family, but, um, and my dad was all on the, uh, on the medical side. My mom was definitely a businesswoman. And tell us about that moving around because you said you lived in a few different states, right? Yeah, when I was 12, we, we moved from Minnesota to Pennsylvania. When I was 15, we moved from Pennsylvania to Seattle, where my mom got a, a job at, yeah, all, all the way across the country. She got a job with Starbucks in their corporate office, oh, right yeah. to start beginning to boom. And she rode out the rest of her career there for the next 20 years in uh, leadership positions at Starbucks. And so, uh, yeah, I've lived all over the country. I ended up in Southern California for college at a university called Biola, where I studied business. And my girlfriend, now wife, was also studying business back then. And so we were ready to 
change the world as a little powerhouse business couple coming out of, <laughs> out of college. So you were, you were kind of feel, it sounds like you were feeling, you know, that was the track you were on. You were sort of feeling called into the business world. And yeah. so it's interesting how that took a turn. So, but, but you get out of school and do you guys get married right out of school or when did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. So we got engaged four days after I graduated and then it was, you know, eight months later. My wife uh, was an accounting student and got a pastor CPA exam, got a job with KPMG right off the bat, signing bonus, big building in Orange County, California. She was doing great. I got a job selling copy machines for a company called Lanier, competitor to Xerox, hardcore out, outside sales, knocking on doors, meeting business leaders all over Orange County, day in and day out. And that was the trajectory of my life for the next couple of years. And I knew that I liked business. I also knew that I didn't want to just uh, be trapped in an office doing marketing research or something like that. I needed to be out with people, making deals, you know, solving problems, that kind of thing. And so that's- So at first, did you kind of like the selling? Or I know it's hard, but did you sort of enjoy the challenge or how how did that go for you first couple of years? Yeah, the first, it it took like six months for me to get my head around, oh, my job, I'm out of college now. And then the next year was- Fantastic. I mean, it's hard, but God was blessing it. And I loved meeting people all day long. I love making new friends wherever we went. I love just being in the mix of like solving problems and saving people money and making deals. And and that went really well for the next year. And, you know, we were on a we were coming out of school, we had student debt. And I to me it felt like, man, don't don't do it. Don't buy a thing until you get that debt paid off. It felt like this this weight on my back. And so we lived incredibly modestly. And we prayed, God, would you take this debt off our back so we can make different decisions in life? And, you know, Sally May had me on the 15-year repayment plan, and God had a different timeline because uh, 18 months later, we were debt-free. Wow. Wow. Love it. Well, uh, marrying an accountant probably didn't hurt in the uh, budget (laughs) category. (laughs) She she probably had a clue about uh, where every nickel uh, was, was going. And, and of course, public accounting is not that easy either. So how, how is that? career track for her. How long did she stay at KPMG? Yeah, she was at KPMG a couple of years. She had some health problems early on in our marriage. Probably some of it was due to just marrying me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but So she had some health problems early on. And then KPMG, she enjoyed it. She had good coworkers, but they actually, you know, they were working six days a week and they called her in at one point and said, it'd be great if, if you could come in on Sundays as well. Right. Um, you know, that would that would really kind of put your career at the next level. And that's when we pulled the plug on KPMG and said, I, I'm newly married. I like to see my wife. We believe in something called the Sabbath. Wow. So um she transitioned to actually her father's accounting firm for the next seven years oh, okay. with taxes for him and with him kind of up and down the coast of California as well as in the Seattle area. So that was she had a nine year run at as a CPA. Okay. That's pretty good. And then now I've read in your bio before that you got a little fed up with the with the sales grind at some point. When did you kind of hit the wall with that? Yeah, after after we paid off student debt, actually began to change the conversation in my mind. I was incredibly money motivated. Yeah, about paying off debt. But once I was done paying off debt, you know, different people within my company were just trying to motivate me with different toys and trips and stuff like that. And I began looking up the company org chart, going, I don't want to be that guy in five yeah. years that guy in 10 years. I don't want to be that guy in 20 years. What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so where that, where does that leave you? So it was a, a soul searching season where I was yeah. spending a lot of time in prayer and seeking counsel from pastors and mentors. And 
ended up leaving business and uh, going into seminary for four years because I, I wanted to be more grounded in God's word, whatever came next. I was in a season where I knew the startup energy that it took to start in a business job was considerable, and I didn't want to just jump into another job if I wasn't sure of it. I wanted to be more grounded. And so I spent the next four years learning Greek, Hebrew, theology, Old Testament, New Testament, preaching, pastoral ministry, was trained as a pastor. I would ne never really felt called to be a pastor, but just wanted to be equipped for whatever was going to come next. Really interesting. And so, okay, so you get out of seminary, which is not yeah. easy learning all those things. and. Yes. Uh, and most everybody else is going, all right, we're interviewing for church jobs and you're doing what? Yeah. So I said to my wife, who had been my sugar mama through saying, <laughs> all right, right. To make sure we didn't go back into debt. I right. Said, hey, we've been chasing my dreams for four years. What's your dream? I had no idea that that question was going to change the trajectory of our mm. lives. Because something spilled out of her heart that day, like water being spilled out of a glass that you just knocked over. It'd, it just spilled out. We had never talked about this before, but she said that she wanted to travel all the way around the world in a single shot in order to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. And I thought, what an incredible woman. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure I've ever heard an accountant say, I would like to travel. It was your dream to travel around the world, be a global Christian and learn to walk by faith. I'm a recovering CPA, okay? I was in public accounting, and I think I'm weird, okay? Yeah. That's, she might take the cake, so that's really amazing. I mean, God clearly had a hold of her heart to, for, that, uh, for that to come out of her mouth. For sure. God, God had a hold of her heart at a young age. She had a grandfather who was, a, and, and grandparents who were just incredible missionaries to Italy and planted a Bible school in Rome and evangelized up and down Italy. And there was just a sense where she grew up hearing their stories of faith, mm. visiting them on the field. And that, but she also grew up with a very successful entrepreneurial CPA father who was very generous, who had a heart for the kingdom. And so there's kind of like these pieces, like I got business in one hand and ministry in the other. And wow. I was very much feeling the same way. I grew up with business parents and and then, but I got this heart for ministry how do these things come together? And I think essentially my wife was saying, like, I don't want just my grandfather's stories of faith. I want my own stories of faith. Oh, my gosh. This is so good. Like, as you paint this picture, I know everybody else is listening to this, thinking the same thing. Like, only God can put these two people <laughs> together. It's like the perfect, like, marriage, of course, like literal and figure, like, perfect <laughs> marriage of these skill sets. Okay, so so you're like, all right, let's go. Pack your bags. Right? Or what, what, how did that go? Yeah, totally. I mean, we had a few, week, a few weeks to pray about it, and yeah. I was wrapping up seminary. She could it wasn't tax season, so she could take a leave of absence. So we oh literally put all of our belongings in storage, and we traveled the world for four and a half months, wow. 132 days uh, circling the globe. And to give you the quick version of the itinerary, we left Los Angeles. We went to Halifax, Nova Scotia, Iceland. Norway, Sweden, Finland, Latvia, Estonia, Greece, Italy, Morocco, Egypt, Ethiopia, Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa, back up to Abu Dhabi and Dubai, trekked in the Himalayas, went to North India, New Delhi area, Taj Mahal, down to Thailand, Thailand to Sydney, Australia, both islands in New Zealand, flew into the South Island, drove up to the north, over to Fiji, Fiji back to Los Angeles. Four and a half months, 132 days. How in the world do you remember the, all of that? That is, that's, okay, I think most people, and maybe I'm projecting here, okay, but 
okay, let's go to Europe for three months because it's not that different. And then we'll just touch base in these other things. What I heard was a touch in Europe and a bunch of the other stuff, this kind of, I don't want to call it the outer fringes, but not the traditional American overseas means, you know, three different European countries uh, for four months. <laughs> okay. You actually did the whole thing. We did. Yeah, we That's did. crazy. Okay. So you got to give us, now I know there was some inspiration along the way. Uh, maybe tell us some of those vignettes. Well, we determined that the walking by faith piece meant we weren't going to book any hotel rooms in advance. Okay. That didn't mean we would never pay for a hotel room. But I, for one, I hate booking you know hotel rooms online, and I didn't want to do that for 132 nights. Right. I wanted to be the blow with the wind. I wanted to be able to show up in a city and say, God, where do you have me have for us today? Which part of the city, which are we going to stay with someone? Are we going to stay in a hotel? What, you know, hostel, whatever. And, um, you know, there's one part where we showed up in Oslo, Norway, and I'm part Norwegian. And so I was excited to go to the motherland and see the right. beautiful fjords and all that. But when we're taking the train into the city of Oslo, we are on my little iPhone three at the time. <laughs> <laughs> long that sets the context that does. 2009 and we're on my iphone 3 looking for places to stay and almost everything was booked and what we didn't know was that in the city of oslo there was a huge soccer match going on against scotland <laughs> so all the scottish people had come over there was a big political thing going on and there was one other big massive concert or event or something that was just taking over the city and so the only remaining hotels were crazy expensive. And we were just on the forefront of this trip and going, you know, there's no way we can't keep this pace if we're going to spend this kind of money on a hotel. So we didn't know what to do, but here we are on the train into Norway, into Oslo. And across from us on the train are these two girls, two Norwegian girls who are just chatting in Norwegian and they're whispering back and forth. And then finally they interrupt and they say, excuse me, are you Americans? And we said, yes. And they said, can we talk with you? And we said, sure. And they said, you know, we were just on a three-month discipleship training school in Ethiopia with YWAM, and there were a bunch of Americans on our project. And Americans are so friendly. They just talk to anybody, and we want to keep that going now that we're, you know, back in our own country. Can we share with you? We said, sure. So we're just talking, getting to know them on this train ride. Well, we get into the city, and they invite us to coffee. So we go to coffee, and at the end of coffee, they said, oh, so where in the city are you staying? And we said, oh, we don't know yet. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't know? It's like, well, here's the options we've looked. It doesn't look good. And they said, well, we have an extra bedroom in our three-bedroom apartment, and our roommate doesn't move in for another week, but it's fully furnished. Would you want to come stay with us? <laughs> Away. We're like, yes, absolutely. And then they give us a tour around the city, and they're, we're praying with them, and they're believers. We're hearing the culture from their perspective, and it's just the best. And so we were learning step by step by step to trust God and to walk by faith. And we all want to walk by sight. We all, we all just want sight. We want to be in control. We want to understand. We want to know the plan. We want to execute. But the, we're called to something higher than that, and it means getting uncomfortable. Um, and so this trip was a huge lesson in walking by faith. And I believe I read somewhere that you also had a conversation that may have been a gospel patrons conversation. Is that true? Yeah. So we, the whole time we're on this trip, I'm praying, what do I do next? When this trip is over, do I go back into business or do I get a job at a church or what do I do? I didn't have any real clear options. There was part of me that wanted to go back into business because I knew how to make money and I knew how to provide. 
and was eager to, you know, begin to grow our family and all that. But there's another part that I knew that if I did that, that part of my heart would die because I was so fired up about God and his kingdom. And after seminary, wanted to put those skills into, into play and to see what God would do. So every day I'm wrestling through this on 132 days around the world, God, what do you want me to do next? And I was in the that liminal space in between. And while we were visiting some friends of ours who were missionaries in India, he's, they said, if you ever go to Sydney, Australia, you should meet a friend of ours and ask him about gospel patrons. And I said, that's crazy. We already have plane tickets. We'll be in Sydney in two weeks. So we show up downtown Sydney, Australia, sweatshirts, jeans, backpacks, after having traveled you know, the world for four months now, and ask this businessman at his office. He invites us out to coffee. And we ask him, you know, what's gospel patrons? We're supposed to ask you. I don't know what that is. <laughs> right. And little did I know, again, my life was going to get changed in a moment because he shared a vision for business people and their role in God's kingdom that I'd never heard before. And I never even conceived it before. But he was wrestling on his own journey saying, you know, as his faith got more and more serious through his thirties, the question was, am I supposed to leave business and go get a job in church? Exactly. And and he was seeking counsel from his mentors about that. And so at the end of his season of seeking counsel from his mentors, they said, no, we think you're supposed to stay in business. It's probably the harder path. And so what you're going to need is a strategy in place for how to succeed financially, but not fail spiritually. They said, we've seen too many people, you know, their business opportunities go through the roof, all their potential, you know, gets realized. And then they go off the rails spiritually because money gets a hold of their hearts. We, we love you too much to allow that to happen to you. So he, and with the help of some mentors, began saying, well, how has God always used Christian business people? Because I don't want to reinvent the wheel here, but let, let's look into history. They coined the term, he and his mentor, Paul Marshall, coined the term gospel patrons to define what they had begun to see throughout history, and specifically British history in the 1500s and in the 1700s. What they discovered was that behind William Tyndale and his first translation of the English New Testament from the original Greek manuscripts was a wealthy cloth merchant who history had almost totally forgotten named Humphrey Monmouth. Now, Humphrey Monmouth had his own company. He was very successful in trading cloth all over Europe and North Africa, but he was very sympathetic to these new Reformation, Protestant Reformation ideas and, and some of Luther's writings that were coming up in the world. And William Tyndale had the ambition to not translate the Bible into German. Luther had just done that, but to do it into English for the first time in history. Now, that was an illegal task. Translation of the Bible in England had been outlawed a hundred years before. And so Tyndale didn't know what to do, and he needed support. And along comes this cloth merchant, Humphrey Monmouth, who says to him, come live at my house. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Let's get to work. So for six months, William Tyndale lives in the home of a businessman translating the New Testament into English. And when he's done, the, this businessman takes him on his merchant ships to where all the best printers were on the European continent. A year later, 3,000 copies of the English New Testament roll off the presses and they put them in watertight boxes, drop them in barrels of oil, drop it in a barrel of wine, put it back on the merchant's ships and smuggle the English New Testament into England. And it lit a flame that burns to this day. I mean, it absolutely, it's, it's hard to imagine what that would have been like because the Bible had been in Latin for a thousand years in Europe. <laughs> Everything that they could have known about God for a thousand years would have been in Latin. 
But as English developed as a language that they used in business and trade and being merchants, and they used it in the home and at schools, they, they still didn't have scripture in the language they spoke every day until this moment. Now they had the Jesus's words, <laughs> that the word of God in their heart language, and it birthed the English Reformation. Well, every Bible you and I have ever read in English finds its headwaters in this translator named William Tyndale and this gospel patron named Humphrey Monmouth. What I find yeah. so, this is yes, so good because the, you know, a lot of Christians, certainly in America, maybe around the world, know the word Tyndale. They've seen that as a publisher, maybe on a Bible or a Christian book or something like that. But I don't think I'd ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth before reading your book, Gospel right. Patrons. So, and, and I think I'm so excited to get into like how this affects people, but let's continue with your story and pull this thread. So you're still on this trip. You hear this in Sydney. What is happening to you as you're hearing this story? Well, I've never done drugs in my life, but I felt like I was high <laughs> the rest of the day. Yeah. How come I've never heard this? Right. Point, and I look back at this point, I think I thought of Christians in business. To be a Christian business person meant fulfilling a checklist of ideas. I'm fair. Yeah. I'm honest. I don't sleep with the secretary. I don't embezzle money. You know, I pray for my employees. I try to share Jesus or invite people to church who I come across in business. And and at 25, I had done those things. And it felt like, okay, check, 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 check. Is that it? Is that it? I Now I just do whatever I want and build my kingdom on the side and get a bigger and bigger house and a faster and faster car and fancier and fancier vacations. Like, is that why God's blessing me? Is that why he's put me on planet Earth? There has to be more. There absolutely has to be more. But what is it? And I didn't have a vision that at the at the very center of every great movement of the gospel in history, there was someone who was going to preach, someone who was going to be the patron of that movement. Someone's going to go, someone's going to give, someone's going to speak, and someone's going to send. But they are partners in the work of God, and they're just playing different roles. But they're they both have strategic roles. They both have glorious roles. They both have God-ordained roles. And business people were no longer second-class Christians in a moment, in a moment through these little historical stories that I heard. They were no longer second-class Christians, but business leaders had a great calling in God's kingdom. Now, I grew up, as I've said, with parents who were, worked in business, with in-laws who were business people. My wife and I trained in business. And I was like, how have I never heard this? And then the question got flipped to, I think the world needs to hear this. I, I think this wasn't just for me to be excited by a few stories. There's something about these stories that were electric. And I end up writing when we finish our trip around the world and we get back, I, I start telling people about gospel patrons. And my father-in-law says, hey, can you tell some of my clients those stories? Uh-huh. And it begins to spread. And all of a sudden, I write to the guy in Australia who told us about this idea. And I said, man, you have to write a book on this. And he said, well, it's in my 10-year plan. And I said, I'm a pushy copier salesman. That's not fast enough. <laughs> we have to get this done. The world needs this idea. So we began writing the book together. And after a few months, uh, he had growing responsibilities with his family and his large business. And so he pulled out and blessed me to go ahead and write the book, Gospel Patrons which was terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. I worked for 10 months with no income. And when my family was like, hey, what are you doing now? You're back from your trip. I mean, I was like, I'm writing a book. <laughs> I 
They're like, how about a job? Have you considered <laughs> Joe's gives benefits? Like, have you thought of right. a job? And there was something within me that was very constrained. Like, if I don't write this book, no one will. Yep. And what I didn't know is that God had a surprise in store for me. After 10 months with no income, a young businessman from our church who was a year older than me at the time, I was 29. I, no, I was 30. He was 31. And he asked me a little bit about my book project. He had a couple days to seek counsel from some of his mentors to see if they thought it was viable. And then he said that he'd like to fully fund my writing project for the next two years as my gospel page. Wow. I did not know that part of the story. Uh, and where did where did he come from we went to church together and we would cross paths at vbs serving with the kids and he was you know a successful telecom guy who's very understated very humble has a huge gift of generosity a huge heart for the lord and god really spoke to him and laid it on his heart to support me in this project and what became historical you know understanding for me got very personal that we would meet together every month at a Mexican food restaurant and he would slide me a $6,000 check across the table. I had to feel so weird for you because I know there are some people who are used to raising their own support. I get that. I honor that, all of those things. But like as a business person who's never done that, even though you went to sell, you paid for it yourself. Like you really never asked anybody for a dime in your life. In fact, I can see your personality as being like, Am I going to be reliant? How was that mental exercise for you? That had to actually be hard, I think. Well, I think, you know, I think you're, I think you're right. There's a lot of business people who are much more prone to giving than they are receiving. And it's, we think it's hard to ask for money. It's hard to receive money. That's what I was thinking. It's humbling. Yeah. And, And so I was both exhilarated. Now I've got permission to really give a couple years of my life to researching and writing this book. Wow. On the other hand, what if nobody buys this? <laughs> totally. What if I fail? What if this, you know, was a my mom and grandma get the copy of the book and that's Correct. it? <laughs> and I wasted my time, this guy's time, this guy's money. Right. I mean, it was, I fa- had to face so It was much. a risk. Yes. It was, a, you know, he and I, when I look back, we were both taking the biggest step of faith together that we'd ever individually taken in our lives. And now we're in this thing. And, but he was such an encouragement to me, not because he preached sermons and gave long speeches to pump me up. He was just with me in it always. That's so cool. I, you know, it makes me think about this line that the safest place you can be, no matter what the circumstances appear to be from the outside is in the will of God. Yeah, that's good. Isn't that interesting? Like, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You you knew, I mean, you knew that's what you were supposed to be doing. You didn't know if it would be successful. You just knew that was what you're supposed to be doing. So like, it's kind of the whole idea. And then you get this great adventure story that continues from here. So, okay. So it actually sells. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. The book, book sold 5,000 copies in the first five months. And I, I was a no-name author with a weird title called Gospel Patrons and we did a self-publishing, you know, job on the book because no publisher understood what I was trying to get at. Oh, totally. They would never I take know. it. I mean, I, no, I, I can't even it. find you on social media. Okay. I mean, so. I don't have any. That, that, right. I mean, that's what they tell you now is that, let me show me how many follows you you have and maybe we'll give you a shot kind of thing, you know. 
But you, got, you had no brand. Social media, but we had no brand, no following, none, none of that. <laughs> Just these stories that we believe God wanted to put into the world. And uh, so the book sells. And the crazy thing was we were hearing from leaders and you know, I think it was 20 countries who just said something like, this is me. I've never had the language. I've never had the history. I've never seen it this way in scripture because we began to see that not only were gospel patrons from history, but Jesus had gospel patrons. The apostle Paul had gospel patrons. Peter had a gospel patron. Luke had a gospel patron, I believe, named Theophilus. And we start seeing it all throughout the New Testament. And people were saying, wow, I've always read right over those verses. I've always just skipped it to get to the exciting stuff with Peter, Paul, and Jesus. Wait a second. Priscilla and Aquila were gospel patrons alongside Paul, and Phoebe supported his work as well? Wait a minute. Maybe I have a role in the kingdom of God. Maybe I have a destiny in the kingdom of God that's greater than anything I've ever conceived before. Maybe this is the reason why God has taken my ideas or my business or my practice, and and he's blown it up the way he has. He's caused it to succeed beyond what I ever could have imagined. What's it for? What's it for? It's not just for business leaders to build their own kingdoms. It's for them to build God's kingdom. And in so doing, they're not second-class Christians, but they're first-rate believers. And so this idea began to get traction. And what we found over time, I was getting invited to speak on it and more books were selling and more print runs. We were like, whoa, this idea is bigger than one book. This is a movement that God is birthing. Movement. Let's, let's wrap a nonprofit around it. Let's find other ways to tell gospel patrons stories through films and videos and interviews and things like that. And it really, that was the birthing of a, of a movement of gospel patrons. That's crazy. So the book comes out 2013-ish, is that right? Just to get the timeline? December 2013. Now, while you're writing this book, what's your wife doing? Does she go back to accounting? Is she trying to figure out what's next? I know you guys are kind of working together now, but how did that evolve? Well, she was my first gospel patron originally because True. she went back to accounting and was working as a CPA. And there was one night that I pulled the car over on our drive home from somewhere. And I was really wrestling because this was before another gospel patron stepped in to fund me. And she had been working so that I could begin to research and figure out how to be a writer. And I pulled the car over one night and I just said, Renee, am I crazy? Mm-hmm. And she could have killed the whole thing right there. Yep. And she said, no, I think God's in this. Keep going. Wow. And gave me permission to, to take a pretty radical step of faith and work with no income for 10 months and then begin to get traction for writing the book. What's so, fascinating to me about this, and I hadn't thought about this before we were, were talking about this today, is that even though you went to seminary, I mean, it's not like your parents were pastors or running a ministry. You really came from a business world. Actually, both of you, you and your wife. You're really business people. You're feeling this call, so you go get the education, but it's not like you wanted to go work for a church, but you want to do something meaningful. So I just keep thinking, it's got to be weird for you. You know, you're preaching this gospel patron thing, okay? But, but you have this sort of bizarre, you, you sort of walk in this weird world between the two. I, I kind of, as I'm talking to you, I almost think of you as more of a business person than a Nonprofit person. I mean, uh, frankly, who cares about the tax status? But I'm just thinking like these setbacks that you had too. Because one of the things we always try to talk about on this podcast are, you know, it's never up and to the right. And you've shared some of those struggles like, uh, who's going to pay for school? Thank you to my wife. What are we going to do after this great trip? Probably pretty out of money. 
have no idea. This inspiration comes. I'm going to write a book. Who's going to fund that? I'm guessing your finances weren't amazing for a long time. And so like, how are these financial challenges for you impacted your thinking about generosity and the way you receive it and all those kinds of things? Such a great question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. I've done a number of podcasts, but wow, well done on that question. <laughs> I mean, it, we were learning to walk by faith. We had started walking by faith on that trip around the world, and that was a massive catalyst because if you think about getting stretched to your end, we were stretched on that trip to know that God was trustworthy. But then when we get home, it's, okay, now, smart guy, walk it out, walk it out. And walk it out when you can't see and walk it out when you need money and walk it out when taking a job would be just the easiest, most comfortable thing. Stay in the awkwardness, stay in the discomfort until God comes through because he will, he will. We just don't control him. He doesn't work for us. We work for him. And so we're going to stay with him in that journey. And, you know, I'll say even after we launched the book, Gospel Patrons, and then started um, the ministry, Gospel Patrons. It was touch and go. It was month to month for probably the next five years. I believe it. You know, and it's, and I come to see that I'm more entrepreneurial than I've ever realized. And this is the journey of every entrepreneur, whether it's business, ministry, church, yes. or sticking something new. It's the journey. Can you hang in there when everything within you screams, get me out of here? <laughs> I know I can sell copiers. I know it's not the most fun, but I know I can make money and provide doing that instead of following this, what many yeah. would call a fool's errand, to be honest. Well, with do you remember there was an old carnival game or like a game you would play at the county fair that you would come up to the, grab this handle and the handle would give you like slight electrocution. Yes. And then like the meter goes up and up and up and up and up and up. And then at some point you just tap out and let go. That's what an entrepreneur's life is. Hold on to this electrocution, how long can you hold the wire? I literally thought, I thought coming into this interview, this will be cool. I like John. He wrote this book that's super helpful to this community. Dude, you're, you are an entrepreneur. This is the, the, actually your story of building even this ministry, forgive me, because businesses are ministry, all that. I don't know. We don't even have the proper English terms for all of these things, how the things, things cross. But you, you really have an entrepreneurial story of sticking with this gospel patron's business and making it happen, you, you know? Uh, I, I just thought, so maybe, maybe, okay, so we got a bunch of, you know, generous business owners listening to this, budding generous business owners listening. You know, when you get in front of these groups and you give a talk, obviously you tell stories and maybe you, maybe you can share another story, another gospel patron's story. And then what do you really, and then maybe as a, as a follow-up, what, what is the thing that you're trying to express to people, the core message? Yeah, the, the core message, I, I think, is about purpose, not about money. Money follows value. Money always follows purpose. And so if you value a boat, your money's going to go in that direction. And that's not bad. That's just what you value. And if you value building a real estate empire, you're going to keep reinvesting more and more and more, more and more money in that empire rather than giving it to the God's kingdom now. And that's, I'm not necessarily making a value judgment on that. God will call different ones of us to different things, but your money always follows your values. And so how is it that we as business leaders, professional people, athletes, artists, entertainers, those in medicine, how is it that we can be really excellent at what God's called us to do and to be, but maintain that Jesus Christ is our treasure? 
so that we don't chase our treasure out there with our wealth. We don't go try to purchase our treasure. We already have it. And therefore, the treasure that he allows to pass through our hands and our bank accounts and our stewardship gets used for helping other people treasure what's going to last forever, which is him. I think so often we get weighed down by the things of the world and we end up treasuring created things rather than the creator. Mm. I think when we do that, we get sad. I had a call with a friend yesterday, just yesterday, who has done very well in business, sold his business. He's 40 years old. He has his dream house. He has his dream vacation house. He's got enough money to buy whatever he wants. And he just said to me, as honestly as I'm going to say this, John, it does not satisfy. Mm -hmm. Still looking for purpose. And, you know, for your own story, Jeff, do you want to share that minute? You just about you getting the big check. Yeah. Transition from one firm to another. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, that that's, you know, when I was in my early 30s, I had, I was moving from Payne Weber to Morgan Stanley. And in this business, they, they write you a big upfront check based on your total revenue. And then they make you earn it out. It's a forgivable loan, essentially. So, but the money's in your bank account. And I remember getting that seven figure check when I was 30 years old and thinking, oh, wow. Like it was literally a physical check. I don't think anybody hands those out anymore. This is 24 years ago, but that they hand me this check and I thought, well, this is neat. And the guy's like, you know, proffering it to me. Like, this is like this ceremony, you know? And he's like, wait, wait till your wife gets a load of that, you know? And I was like, I was like, wow, that's what it's all about, right? Like the American dream. Okay. And I was like, but who cares? Like I literally had it. It was emptiness, uh, immediate emptiness. And I thought, uh oh, you know? And so what is that greater purpose? And I think there's something, I haven't quite figured it out. And maybe I know you think about this every day, so maybe you can put it in terms. But, you know, I sort of think of this world uh, halftime as another book we hand out a lot. You know, Bob Buford wrote that in like, I think, 95. And, you know, he sold the family cable business. And then, you know, now I'll do significance. And he always regretted that people read that book and thought, well, maybe I have to sell my company to now have impact. And so I think he did a great job in his generation of teaching people, and the organization continues to do this, to think about your, your personal calling, and it doesn't have to be moved to Africa. So I think that was sort of stage one. I think you're taking people kind of to stage two, where it's almost assumed that you, you keep your persona of a business person. You don't have to. Again, you know, I have a great friend who's a, like a natural evangelist who sold his company. He will be an evangelist and fund other evangelists. So that's unique in that he can actually do some of the work himself. So it's not a one size fits all, but by gospel patrons, by the very term of it, it makes me think it normalizes a, 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 a legacy that has a bit of a brand to it that is larger than praying and spraying a large number. It, it feels... How do you, is that true that it, it yeah. you feel like it kind of defines a class where it's super meaningful and a legacy, maybe to do a big project or a country that you focus on or whatever it is? What is it? What, what, what are the words that I'm missing here? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's giving people a sense of identity, not replacing our identity in Christ, but a sense of like, this is what I've been made for. This is yes. why I'm the way I am. This is why I'm blessed the way I'm. It's not only identity, but it's it's validation. I now have a a term for what I am. Validation. I, yes, validation. I like identity. that. 
it's helping us grasp that God doesn't call everybody to drop their nets, leave their business, and go into full-time ministry. He doesn't. If you look at and read the book of Acts, when Peter and Paul show up in different towns and villages, they don't say to every business person like Cornelius, now come with me and preach the gospel because that's what you know real Christianity looks like. They'll often say, stay in your town and do what God's doing you know, here, you know, contribute to the church, Lydia, contribute to the church in Philippi, but we have to go on to other cities and villages to bring this message. And so I think it's helping, it's helping a generation of people understand their calling from God and feel okay in that. And it kind of removes the guilt of, is it bad to be wealthy? Is it bad to make a lot of money? Is it bad to not be a pastor? So good. Okay. Now, I don't think God took you and your wife around the world for no reason. Maybe not just for that moment. That was super awesome. Okay, of course, that would be enough. But I have a sense, most people that I know that love to travel, it, it, they don't just take one around the world trip and then now it's out of their system. <laughs> I'm imagining you're going to take this around the world. I, I know you're busy in the U.S. doing these things. My friend Jonathan Lewis in Canada today uh, said to tell you, you need to come to Canada and share the story. So a shout out to Jonathan. But are you going to now we had a little conversation before that. Will you just sort of explain where you see America maybe fitting in this generationally and then how this how you think this might spread around the globe? Well, I'm very encouraged that Gospel Patrons is spreading a lot in the UK right now. It's spreading in Scotland. There's a hub in London of, of Gospel Patrons. If you're in listening to this and you're in the UK, you can go to gospelpatrons.org, click on the movement tab and get connected with the London chapter of Gospel Patrons. But I've been able to preach this in Sydney. I've been able to preach this in Singapore. I've been able to preach this in Jakarta. Um, and I, 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 feel a sense of stewardship over this message for the globe, that instead of God entrusting me with great wealth, he's entrusted me with a great message. And mm. it's not for one denomination, one state, one country, it's for the body of Christ globally. And so I'm praying, and if you'd pray for me for it to have wisdom to steward this thing for the body of Christ globally, that's part of my sense of what, why God's put me on the planet. And I believe that America is in the third generation of its generosity movement. I believe that you know, Larry Burkett, uh, really set the tone for us. Ron Blue has carried the torch so well and so faithfully, and and guys like Randy Alcorn have been incredible along the way, and many many others. But this generosity movement in America is exploding right now. There are books coming out, podcasts, ministries, leaders preaching on this, unlike we've ever seen. And I think that's part of our stewardship as a nation to mature in the in this message, mature in our understanding of God's word, and then put feet to this. So we really walk by faith. We really give generously. We don't just tip God. It's not just a tithe or a tax to the kingdom of God. We seek it first. We put God's kingdom first. And as we do that, we have the resources in America to bless the world. We have the resources in America to spread the gospel, to finish the Great Commission, to eradicate Bible poverty, to see churches planted in every village. We have the potential to bless the world, and we can carry this message of generosity and stewardship to them so they don't get stuck in the love of money as their country comes up and becomes more profitable like India or China. They don't go, great, now I got the good stuff. No, the good stuff is Jesus. The good stuff is his word. It's his spirit. It's his kingdom. And when we have that, we have everything we need. Let's go out and make an impact. Let's go out and build the kingdom. That's why we exist as business leaders, as pastors, as missionaries. As evangelists, that's why we're put on planet Earth, to give him great glory, advance his kingdom. And when we do that, man, 
it's the most joyful, happy-making, satisfying, purpose-driven life we could we could ever imagine. Wow. What a place to kind of wrap that conversation up. Of course, we could go forever. And the, you have so many stories to tell. I, I, I almost feel bad that we didn't tell them. But at the same time, I think the backstory of where this came from uh, hasn't been told as many times. So I'm thrilled with the way this, this went. Everybody just go out and buy the book, Gospel Patrons, and read the stories that are in it. That is also amazing. You will be blessed by that. But as we wrap up, John, as you know, I, we always just picture like you and I having lunch and our friends get to listen to this and, you know, they're on the treadmill or whatever. And they're maybe a little behind. They're running. Maybe they're still selling copiers. OK, but they got a little copy business. They're thinking, man, nobody else is thinking like I am. These are my people. But what am I supposed to do tomorrow? I'm not, you know, uh, this big name that uh, can fund, you know, uh, millions of Bible translations tomorrow. But what's a step they could do tomorrow? Just some practical tip that that business owner listening could employ tomorrow that might help them on that journey. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because I think one of the greatest lies that keeps us from giving now is we compare ourselves with those who give more and we know we can't do that. And so we just go, well, I'm not going to play in the game then because I can't, you know, I can't play like they play. So I'm, I'm, I guess this is not a game for me. And when I was when I was in that limbo space where I just finished my trip around the world and I was hoping to write gospel patrons, but I didn't have support yet. One story I rarely get to tell is my wife came to me and said, you know, that couple we visited in India, they lead a church. They've got an amazing missions movement there. Uh, I think we should financially support them. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, remember, I don't have a job. Right. <laughs> right. I make zero dollars every month. And I just finished seminary. So the prospect of me ever making money again just flew out the window. And you want us to make an ongoing monthly commitment to some missionaries? I don't help, help me out here, but that's not adding up. Well, she said, uh, she, she just like politely, you know, dismissed the conversation and probably went away and prayed for me because a couple of weeks later, the Holy Spirit prompted my heart in a way that was very unusual. Holy Spirit basically said to me, if you're not going to support them, you're not going to support anybody. I've given you every reason in the world to support them. You've known the wife for seven years. You've been in their home for two weeks. You've been on the field. You've seen their work up close. You've participated in their ministry in India. You have every reason to support them except this little thing called money. But if you don't commit to support them, he said this, your heart is either going to get bigger and wider for my kingdom or smaller older, darker, and harder. You decide. Ooh, baby. And that, that thought scared me to death. That this was not about money and zeros and bank account yeah. transfers. This was about my heart. And I got to choose if I was going to have a big, wide open heart for his kingdom or a small, cold, dark heart. And so I came back to my wife and I said, fine, fine, fine. I'm in. <laughs> hundred dollars a month. I have no idea where the money's going to come from. And it was within the next month that God raised up a gospel patron to support us at $6,000 a month for not two years, but three years. Wow. I would say for a next action step, wherever you're at, wherever you're at on the treadmill, in your car, on the subway, making dinner, 
don't excuse yourself by the m- amount of money you can't give. You can only give what God calls you to give and what you have to give now. So start now. He who's faithful with little will be faithful with much. Here's what you could practically, practically do. There's got to be somebody in your life who is a pastor, who is a missionary, who is on full support, or they're raising money to go to the field, or there's a summer project, or there's a need in your community that's got Jesus at the center of it. Uh, Most of the time, those people are praying for money to rain down from heaven. They're looking for it to grow on trees. They're believing that just an envelope's going to show up in the mail to do what they believe God's called them to do. Here's my challenge and homework assignment for you. Find one of those people that you already have some trust with, that you're already in relationship with, and text them, call them, take them out to lunch, whatever, and ask them this simple question. What could I do for you that would change the game for your ministry? What could I do for you that would cause your ministry to be so successful and for this gospel message to advance faster and further than we ever could have thought? Is there something in your heart that is not in the budget? Is there something in your life where you, 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 you even barely dare to dream that God could do it, but if he did do it, it would advance his kingdom like we haven't seen within our community? Is there something you've been, it's just a little seed that you've barely even shared with anybody, but if there was the right funding and leadership behind it, that this thing might, it just might fail, but it just might take off and bless the world. Is there anything like that that I could do for you? And then shut up and wait to hear what they might say. Oh my gosh, this is so good. I think of George Mueller, you know, who famously ran the orphanage and would just have money show up. And of course, in reading his biography, it's mostly from his side. It's almost like you've written the book on the other side because everybody, you know, I mean, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Like the, the, Everybody gets to play in the joy. It's not just the receiver. In fact, sometimes that's less than the the giver. So yes. anyway, uh, writing checks and and uh, engaging in that way does not make you a second class citizen. And start right now. I just love that, John. Thanks so much for being with us. We could go for hours on this, <laughs> it, but the number one thing that I wrote down is thank you and Renee for your faithfulness. Because without your faithfulness and suffering all those setbacks along the way, this message would not be out there. So thank you for that. We're all blessed by it. Welcome. Well, I'm encouraged that you're leading a community of people who are living this message. Let's raise up a generation of gospel patrons and see what God might do. Well, perfect way to end it. And thank you once again, John. And thank you for everybody for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. We will see you next week. Feel free to leave your ratings and reviews and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.